Hello and welcome to Professional Practice Podcasts with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London, and today we'll be looking at the issue of practice management. To do that, I'm joined by Colin McCall, Director of Award-Winning Practice ORMS, www.orms.co.uk, and Colin became a director in 2017. One of his responsibilities is ISO 9001 and 14001, but he's also no slouch at the sharp end of architecture and won RIBA Project Architect of the Year for Uppingham School Science Centre. So, thank you very much, Colin. Thanks for joining us, actually allowing me to join you. So, a good place to start after that rather hurried introduction is ISO 9001-14001. Do you want to just give us a snapshot, soundbite as to what they are? Okay, thank you, Austin. 9001-14001 are essentially international quality assurance standards. They allow you to benchmark your activities against the rest of your profession and a wider sphere as you choose. And they come with a series of metrics that as long as you go through that process, it can help you uh, improve your quality position within the practice. That was a short sound bite, because it's a very long document. Stick with the 9001 rather than the environmental 14001, for example. Quality management 9001, they have seven quality management principles, if I'll read them out to you. Customer focus, leadership, engagement of people, process approach, improvement, evidence-based decision-making, and relationship management. So my first question is, is, is this just telling us what we do already as a matter of course? I think that it is to some extent, however, you might not realise that you're doing it. I think good design and good design processes tend to cover those seven points. You tend to obviously speak to customers, hopefully, uh, and hopefully you're doing a good job. Therefore, you're focused around what they're looking to do, getting through the different work stages, making sure that you're addressing their brief. And from that, you are also then leading the design process, leading the team. So that covers leadership. You're also uh, engaging with the team, the wider stakeholders, the client, all sorts of different people that want to get engaged in the process. And there is a very defined route to uh, go through, which is the RIBA plan of work. However, in terms of QA and ISO 9001, I don't think a lot of practices are, well, they might be aware of it, but they're not necessarily uh, sitting down and saying, how can we use this to enhance our offer or to actually streamline some of what we're doing? And that's really where that policy has really helped us as a practice. Okay, it's good if you can focus a little bit maybe on what OMS do and how you deal with it, because obviously the idea about, uh, as the QA system says, you need to measure and monitor key indicators to demonstrate uh, the architect's performance. That sounds like spreadsheets, tick boxes and all that kind of stuff. So where do you draw the line between kind of useful monitoring and it being itself a drain on resources? Uh, It's a good good question because the thing that I did when I set up this was to ensure, hopefully, that we weren't just filling in a box for the sake of filling in a box. There's no point having a spreadsheet because you've got a spreadsheet and you can say, oh, that's great. What does it actually do? What's its purpose? And where does it have its value to you? As As a busy project architect, in a busy practice, you've got to be able to make sure that you're optimizing your time. So we developed a project quality plan, which is based around the principles that are set out in 9001. And what that really is doing is mitigating risk for everybody, but particularly you and your client through the process. So at each gateway, the RBA stage, there are a number of key questions that we worked out in the practice were important to us in terms of managing our risk. And as we went through each stage, we made sure that the spreadsheet pointed to information that was relevant and 
would be able to be used by anybody at any point going forward into the future, rather than just being there for the sake of itself. Right, so does risk then run through all of these headings? Risk does, and risk's a very negative thing, but actually, if you flip it around and sort of view it in terms of how it's improving the process and improving the building, the design, the relationship with everyone around about it, because actually, risk management, if you are dealing with it properly, means that risk is kind of sort of falls away and you can focus on the positives. Uh, and all of these things are only really pulled out when things are going wrong. And when things are going wrong, if you've got good auditable trail, then you can at least tell the facts and then have a sensible discussion hopefully about it. So yes, risk runs through it all, but the way we set it up is to sort of play down the risk element and focus on project success and, and, and the sort of up upside objectives. Okay, because there's what you do, and then there's a general world outside these four walls, because there's risk-taking, entrepreneurship and all the rest of it, and there's risk aversion, which seems to be the tenure of our times in some ways, isn't it? So how, yeah. how do you manage to maintain a healthy relationship well, between those? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think that risk aversion, I think architecture as a profession are quite risk averse. And I think that a lot of that, and this is just my personal view, comes from years of maybe being caught out or trying to do the right thing, you know, and making the right intentions, but somebody that's feeling a bit blue one day will come along, pick a hole in something, and then it all sort of starts to fall apart because you've done something with the rest intentions, but you haven't had the right backup to it. And, you know, ultimately, to be a bit more entrepreneurial, I sort of believe that you need to have a good quality system in place, whether it's accredited system or not, if you're running a practice and you're looking to achieve the best design results for your clients, you need to have some good solid systems in place. And I describe it a little bit like a network or a framework that you can, uh, it's a really solid grid that then you can bounce your architectural creativity over the top of it and know that when you drop back into that grid, there's something there to pick up the quality assurance, risk mitigation, etc. Okay, good. Uh, we'll come back to bouncing. Uh, ideas uh, in a moment but we always start these things let's take a step back if you will we always talk about the guests early career so Roland talk to us about how you were bullied as a child just tell us about your university where you went okay goodness right well I was I studied in uh, Scotland at Scott Sutherland's and I don't know why but I always wanted to be an architect apparently that's what my parents said anyway so we kept going on that went into architecture and worked my first year out in Inverness and had a dreadfully experience there. So I always said at that point, if I was ever in a position lucky enough to be running a firm and offer part one students year placements, I would make sure that we provide everyone with a wide range of experience rather than just sitting in the printing room and printing drawings all, all year. But that didn't put me off. And then I ended up working for Jubilee Line Extension Project, which is a major infrastructure project, the last big one before Crossrail in London. Uh, and then that led me into small practice where I worked in London for a few years and then I went back to Scotland and set up in Scotland McCall Architects. And I was there for another seven years and we went through some good times and some bad times and particularly bad times when the world recession came along. Which uh, leads me to gesticulate. Gesticulating. Tell us, tell how, us much, more. how much do you want to tell us? How much can you tell okay, us? Okay, so I would say that if anyone is wanting to set up on their own in practice, you should go for it. Because if you don't and you felt that you should have, you'll always wonder what if. And what's the worst that can go wrong, really? Well, I'm about to probably tell you. Uh, I set up on the back of one project that a friend of mine said, oh, we're looking to do a shop fit for our, our little retail business. And I heard you're coming back to Aberdeen. Would you like to do it? And I thought, let's 
take the jump and go in. So completely naively, set up on my own, and then one thing led to another, and one thing I would say is good marketing that you can do is always do the best project you can ever do. Because it's amazing how your name gets around and slowly but surely you evolve a sort of organic network of contacts and opportunities come from all angles. So the highs of that are amazing because you finish projects for people, particularly private clients who spend their after-tax money with you, you know, and somehow your idea is the amazing idea they always you know, needed in their life, which is just incredible to think of that privilege, but also some, some downs. And in the recession, I came back from a family holiday in 2009, late 2009, and the world essentially come to a grinding halt. And virtually overnight, I went from, I think, 17 live projects down to three. And that was in a, yeah, sport, about a fortnight. And it was tough. It was really tough. And we, we tried to keep going. I made some decisions then that maybe I've learned from now in hindsight I might not do. But ultimately, uh, I had to go through very sad experience of making my whole office except one person redundant in one day. We tried to look at all sorts of different options, look at ways we could mitigate debt, people not paying us, which meant we couldn't pay people. So the whole vicious circle. And then from that, you know, I was just sort of going along the bottom line, basically being a sole practitioner, looking for opportunities, glimmer of hope. When out of the blue, I got a phone call from a, a very good old friend, John McRae, who's a fellow director here at Orms, offering me the opportunity to come back to London and do some consultancy work to see if it might work out in the long term. And the project I worked on was for Uppingham School. It was a science building, which you touched on at the beginning of the podcast, where I was very fortunate to be involved in a RIBA award-winning building. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. So I have to say, I mean, I, I congratulate you because it's very... Um very brave in many respects to talk about these things to the listening public. Your mistakes are out there in the world so that other people maybe can learn from them. So is there yes. anything you can advise that people do or do not do? <laughs> um, I think giving advice on these things is always, you know, what, what does one say? I think that the main thing that I learned was when I was running my own practices in London uh, for a short period, but primarily in Scotland, was that I was maybe a little bit too hot-headed at times. And I think that sometimes it's very hard when times are tough or decisions are going against you to think rationally about what's happening. And in the recession, it wasn't just me that was under pressure. Clients were under pressure because their finances dried up and everybody was struggling and everybody was dealing with it in different ways. And I think that one thing, particularly since coming back to London and working in Orms, is we concentrate a lot on you know just making sure that we are always taking a breath making the right decision giving good advice even if the advice you give isn't necessarily going to help you out as it were but giving the right advice to your clients collaborators that's the biggest lesson to learn is sensible head deep breath no emails friday night 9 p.m so is that the luxurious life you lead? Um, so is that like saying learning how to say no as well as learning how to say yes? Learning how to say no is a very tricky thing to do. But if you say no, you have to say no graciously. Do it knowing that it's a small world that you live in. But I would always try and not say no if at all possible. Can you give us 20 quid? Okay. We'll talk about just it just after the podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, we as a practice have said that we, you know, do we, do we say no? You know, does a small project come in? You know, is the situation not right? Are we over-resourced, under-resourced? How do you make those judgments? And you can run as many metrics as you like, 
But ultimately, sometimes it comes down to experience, gut feel, things like this as well. You know, you've got to sort of weigh it all up. And uh, by example, we were asked to do a project which was for a reception in Holborn, central London. Very difficult building. The client was concerned about what they were going to do with it. Market, poor perception. Could you come in and tart up the reception? And that turned into an award-winning project for us, a multi-million pound, I think 40-odd million pound project. And we were thinking, should we say no? So you've always got to explore the first question, I think. So I'll explore that £20 and understand why. <laughs> and, you know, and then make a decision very good, further very down good, the line. Very good. <laughs> we take checks. So just to be clear again, just to lay some, I don't know, ground rules or whatever, in terms of the way that you're coming at practice management, are you one of these kind of management theory gurus or are you a pragmatic, hands-on, learn-by-experience kind of guy? I think that I have learned by experience uh, more than sort of the theory of it and having spoken with your cohorts at Kingston uh, done some reading around management theory that the students are looking at I would say that there are there is definite benefit in understanding management theory framework it is very clear in the way it puts together the way you would conceive running a practice in an idealistic environment and I think that if you've got that and then you build up your experience over the top of it. I think that's a good combination. I didn't have that opportunity, but I can see that, you know, in a more ideal world, I think there is definitely opportunity to understand a little bit more about business management. It's not something you necessarily focus on so much in, in, in the university cycle of your career. Yeah, yeah. We try and touch on it a little bit, but one of the things that you mentioned, which I suppose doesn't come out in the academic, philosophical world of professorial discourse and, and, uh, and research papers, is that you say the first thing that you should consider when starting a practice is the exit strategy, which, yes. which is kind of a nice line, but it has importance. So do you want to just explain of what course. you mean by that? So I was taught from somebody that I respected a lot when I had my practice in Scotland about a whole range of sort of business bits and pieces. And one of the things he said to me well, was, what's your exit strategy when you set up? And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? I've just set up. You know, I'm not exiting, I'm, I'm growing. And he said, but how do you know where you're growing to or what you're trying to get to? You know, what your vision is? You know, if you don't know what the end game is, your end game can change, but you need to have some sort of sense of what is called your exit strategy. And that exit strategy, therefore, could be you retire and then that's it, you've left, you've exited. It could be that you're going to grow your business to a certain scale and then try and find a buyer for it. It could be that you grow your business and then you bring other directors or partners in and they financially start purchasing parts of your company. But all of those things have different implications potentially on the way that you're structuring your year-to-year business plan, and you know how you're trying to gain work profile and everything else. What is it you want out of your business? So that it's a strategic decision in the, in your mind, and you can park it well back. But it says this is what I'm trying to do. And I think majority of architects are just thinking I want to get on and build some good buildings, design buildings, enjoy that process, and feel like you know I'm achieving a good career because it's so satisfying to build a building. And, and at the end of it, if, if I'm an employee, you know, maybe been contributing into a pension or um, built up some other equity in other ways, you know, I'll, I'll then have a nice retirement. And business owners have a slightly different take on it, but it is that long-term exit strategy. It's not like, oh, the recession's come, how do I lay everyone off? That's a more immediate, 
sort of day-to-day -day task virtually in terms of the time frame of exit strategy. Yeah. It's like uh, it's more reactive. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean. Global collapse is something that you may. Yeah, you just can't, can't get past it. Really, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Yeah, exactly. So, in, speaking of recessions, uh, since here we are, um, slightly pre-Brexit, well, we'll always be pre-Brexit at this rate. You mentioned uh, when we were talking earlier about cash flow, the need to be very um, astute with the way that you carry your capital, uh, a fixed capital versus cash flow. So, again, do you want to? Whether yes. you want to make that resonant to the example you gave of your previous practice or as a general principle? Well, I think the say? general principle is cash is king. And people hear it all, all the time and it's sort of quite flippant. You can say, oh, cash is king. But it is, it is the fundamental thing. If you are not beholden to anyone else, it gives you the flexibility to make the right strategic decisions, potentially. I'm not saying that you will make the right strategic decisions, but it certainly gives you some breathing room. And in normal time, um, you're, there is a lag between when you invoice for your work that you've completed to when you receive the money. And depending on the clients, that could be you know, anything on the good side within the first month up to 90 days plus, or you might be chasing a debt. But of course, during that period of time, when you've invoiced for the work, you still need to pay everybody and all your overheads while you're waiting for that money to come in. So you've got to have cash to be able to do that. And if you, if you don't, you could end up in a situation where you're profitable but you have no cash, therefore your business sort of starts to get squeezed and has the potential to sort of fold under. So cash is super important. So in terms then of fees, which obviously to make the cash you have to charge the fee and the fee has to include your profit as well as your overheads and your, your wages and what have you. Uh, how do you calculate your fees? Are you doing it on a general rule of thumb? On a, you know, or are you, every job becomes timesheet sensitive? We sell time as a profession, full stop. It's not a sort of tangible thing that you do an R&D phase, you know, and then issue out, you know, some, you know, some object or other. We actually do that on a much larger scale, actually, which is a building. So every building is a research and development project, you know, and um, it's not like you're versioning the building. Even if you're doing a McDonald's drive-through, every site's different. So even though they all look the same, they're kind of not. So building up a fee is from, from our point of view, always of what we describe a bottom-up calculation. So we understand what the client brief is asking us to do. We project the amount of resource we're gonna use in each RIBA workstation, uh, and that's based on experience of the projects um, that come into the practice. And then that really totals up to a bottom line break-even figure. And then we decide what profit margin are we going to apply onto the top of that. You know, dependent on the market, dependent on how hungry you want, you know, you are, how big you, big the job is, prestige. You can start to vary those figures around in the margins of profitability to decide how competitive you may feel you want to be. And then once we've done all that, we do a quick top-down check as well, based on sort of uh, experience. I, I said before, gut feel. We know, you know, roughly how much money per week an architect or a fee earner earns, and therefore you can start to get an instinct over the years if you've got a £5 million project or a £10 million or, or £30 million or £100 million, You get a sense of it. So when you want to be competitive, it's your profit that gives Simply, yes, I would say. In architecture, there's always pressure to deliver. It's quite vocational. There's always this thing about what are you doing when, how do you deliver your time, how much overtime are you willing to invest in it. You can play around with figures any way you want, but ultimately it takes a lot of time it takes. What you have to do as, a, as an architect is convince your client that it's worth 
paying the best price for. So sometimes, you know, we'll take a decision to sharpen our pencil, as it were, on our fee to try and make sure we get the job. But we're very clear with what we're going to deliver for that fee. And then if the client wants to change their mind, which is our entire right to do that, we will always then be advising them that there might be some cost implications there for them or extra fees for redesign work, etc. But one, one truism is that if you don't, if you haven't got the job in the first place, you can't increase your fee pot, therefore, going forward. But you've got to be careful that you're not running at a negative figure because a lot of firms, you'll start to see it as, as the world potentially tightens in this next economic um, cycle, is that they will try and buy work by basically doing projects for less than their break-even cost. And what they're just looking for is cash flow coming in from that in the hope that they can just push through that particular sort of cycle of recession and, until the profitable projects come, keep coming back up. Yeah, so yeah. it's that swing again between cash flow and profitability. Uh, presumably that drives down everybody's... It fees. does, and as a profession we're pretty bad at that. You know, we, we complain a lot about our fee levels, but we're the first to slice each other in half, you know, if you're not careful. We're very fortunate as a practice that we tend to work with clients who understand that there's a value there for them to make sure that the design comes through to the fore because that's adding to their bottom line of their value. Whether it's financial value or personal capital value, it, they, they see and understand that. But having worked um, in different places and in smaller firms in different parts of the country, it is much more ruthless than that, definitely. And so these two maxims of being completely transparent with the client, or at least you know, keeping them informed on one hand, and managing expectations of the client on the other hand, are they two things that you... Key, key, key factors yeah. really. You know, your client is paying you, it's totally transparent, you know, there's no, we're not, we, we don't run a hindered agenda, I don't believe many firms would. If you do your best job, and are open about it, and keep a straight back, you'll have a good career is my view. And so far, touch wood, it's going okay. Very good, very good. It's like homespun philosophy. This exactly, exactly. Fantastic. Exactly. Uh, so final two questions which run into each other, I suppose. One is, in terms of practice management, how do you see that has changed, if at all, in the light of two things? One, technology, and the other one, the changing role of the architect within the procurement process. I think that, well, office management, practice management is evolving all the time in the sense that I think there's much more focus around how you, the members of your team are, how, how are they doing? A lot of the focus at the moment is on wellness, mental good health, uh, mental you know, well-being, and rightly so. But that, in pure management terms, it increases the pressure on the different aspects that you've got to sort of bring to bear, particularly through uh, sort of HR side of practice management um, and just understanding the pressures that we're all, we're all under. That's also a cost, isn't it? Yes, wellness comes with a cost in terms of, there's the cost of how much does it cost to put on various activities to support your team, but then what's the cost if your team are ill through you know, too much mental pressure? And we, we're, we're working with the, we're supporting Architects Benevolent Society this year and their focus is very heavily around, around this sort of discussion about wellness um, and well-being in the practice. And so if you don't invest in your team and you know, understand that that is worth doing, I think actually it costs everybody more in the long term. How you measure it, I think, is something yeah. that you, is, is, is slightly harder to do. Yeah. But across the industry, across, well, across 
society really that with the pressure of technology connectivity you're never you're never off you know you've got to sort of create situations where there is a bit of a balance there okay but you know what I mean as the recession bites or as the uncertainty of the economy as we're in at the moment increases presumably therefore personal stress levels might go up yes but ironically then you have to spend more money on mediating the stress at a time where you're having to maybe cut your cut your cloth yeah so um, obviously if you're cutting your cloth accordingly you need to make judgments across the whole of practice management uh, about where's best to put the money at Orms we have a, a social bu- we have a number of budgets one of them is a social budget which as we're an employee ownership trust our employee ownership council take an active part in that and that's worked out uh, at a rate per fee earner so if the practice was shrink in a shrinking phase then the amount of money which sort of wellness initiatives etc come under naturally shrinks down in, pro- in proportion to the size of the firm so that there's always a correct balance to deal with that aspect of staff life even when maybe there's pressures elsewhere it's just really important to recognize that and people are growing up so they understand when things are a little bit tighter but in actual fact even doing a small thing at that point is welcomed even more and we we, we as a practice really value that approach okay yeah the second part of the question was in terms of uh, how has practice management changed in the light of the changing procurement roles I don't think practice management for us has changed very much with design and build, fundamentally. I think it's still about quality assurance, it's still about risk mitigation, it's still about success and achieving the best result you can. D&B as a procurement method was maybe set up under a different premise, but if you get the system right where at whatever point the contractor is coming on board, that the employer's requirements are fully sorted out and the contractor knows what they're buying, so the sooner they're buying it, so maybe they're buying a project at stage three instead of four, there's going to be more risk for them, so it's going to, they're going to put more money in the risk pot. But from our point of view in terms of the management process, if I go back to our project quality plan, it tracks the process all the way through from stage zero to seven, and your no- the novation point, if you are novated, just happens at three or four. And we have a novated team who carry on using that project quality plan. Well, I say novated team if we're novated to contractor, which often happens. And then we also have a client monitoring team who are reporting directly for the client. Uh, so they, they sort, of sort of sit in a separate part of the office, as it were, and they're really focusing on making sure that what the novated team are doing is still in accordance with the ERs. And it's all controlled under our, our management plan and our, our practice management system. So, uh, and that would be the same if it was design and build or construction management or uh, traditional procurement. Um, I think that if you've got a decent system, actually it sits under uh, you know, the sort of whole process actually. Perfect. If you've got a decent system, everything falls into place. Ideally. That's the, that's but it's not a panacea for all else, I'll have to say that. But no. yeah, I mean, you, you, you just have to do the best you can. You know, and uh, if, pe- if you're doing that, then people don't respect that then that's their problem. Perfect. I like that. I like that as a conclusion. That's uh, all we have time for, I'm afraid. Many thanks to Colin McCall at ORMS, ORMS, www.orms.co.uk. My name is Austin Williams. Please subscribe to hear the archive and even more interviews with equally interesting people. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Professional Practice Podcasts.